0: You're not going to get everything done in the first week. But if you lay it out and the Department of Justice has said in no uncertain terms between the Monaco memo and otherwise, show your work. You can't be doing it retroactively. Show your work prospectively. Show us what you're thinking as you're going along, not only to defend what you're doing, but also to have a plan that you work against.
1: Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Welcome, everybody. Really happy to have Professor Steve Naughton, longtime colleague and friend of mine for many years and an expert in the compliance field. Full disclosure, Steve also has a part-time relationship with the Volkoff Law Group, but that shouldn't dissuade you. And Steve has an incredible background in compliance, and we're going to learn about that. And his current work in the compliance program at the Loyola Law School in Chicago. Welcome, Steve.
0: Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Well,
1: Steve, just to set the table a little bit, and I know we're going to drop some big names here, but your background in compliance, I would love to hear how you even got into compliance and sort of the path that you followed and how you ended up at Loyola, still doing a lot of compliance work with clients as well.
0: That's exactly right, Mike. And I'm glad to go through it and I appreciate the opportunity. I'll go back to when I came out of law school and give you a little bit of the background on what my career was initially. I went to Notre Dame Law School. From Notre Dame, I started at a firm in Chicago, Rooks, Pitts, and Poust, which is no longer in existence, but a terrific old firm in the day. I'll tell you one little story about that. Mike was. I worked there for a year when I got engaged to my wife, Nancy, and no, really very few people if any knew in our firm that we were even dating, let alone close enough to getting engaged. Well, I told one of the members of the executive committee that we we're engaged, so I told them, Dave, I've got good news for you and bad news. He said, well, give me the bad news. I said, well, I'm leaving the firm. I'm going over to Colt Ballard. And he said, oh, what's the good news? Marry Nancy Parody next year. And. Without hesitation, he stood up and he looked at me and said, well, better you than her. And that was kind of of the reaction for the three weeks before before I left the firm. (laughs) Uh, I went over to the late, great Pope Ballard Shepherd and Fowl, which was a wonderful, wonderful firm back in the day. And then went in-house to the Quaker Oats Company, where I was the head of all of the litigation for a number of years, but also became very active in operations. When we bought Snapple, I did basically all the work for Snapple, in-house legal work for Snapple. Quaker had had Snapple back in 94 to 96.
1: Wow, Uh, I remember that. I remember that. Great product, by the way, Snapple.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the real deals of all time. Quaker bought Snapple for $1.9 billion in December of 94 and sold it to Triarch in less than three years. For $280 million. So yeah, it's the stuff of business case studies now. That's a classic. That would be a great learning experience. It was an amazing, amazing story. And then from there at Quaker, we were purchased by PepsiCo. And that's another story in and of itself. Back in 2001, primarily for Gatorade. That was the real play for Pepsi. But they ultimately really kind of fell in love with the food products, kept the food, kept the cereals business and all of that did well. And I basically ran the litigation for Quaker and then did one more of that for Pepsi. And then about three years in, Larry Thompson of the Thompson memo fame became the general counsel for Pepsi. And when he did, he said, we've got a small compliance group, but would really like to build it out would like you to come in, and when my predecessor woman named Pam McGuire was absolutely legendary in her own right. She was the former GC for the Pepsi bottling group. When she retired about a year later, I ascended to become the chief compliance officer, and what's remarkable about that, wow, PepsiCo and you're the chief compliance officer. Literally, when I started, it was Pam, one paralegal, and yours truly. It was the three of us. Basically, setting up this program for a company at the time that was $60 billion in sales or something like that. And three of us were running compliance, and this is 2004. By the time that I left the compliance group at PepsiCo in 2012, we were up to 40 people with presence basically all the way across the world. You asked me, Mike, when we were talking at one point about how'd you get into compliance? I didn't study for it, I didn't go to law school thinking, gee, I'll become a compliance officer. Is I was at Quaker, you heard about compliance, but it was kind of an idea that floated around. We had a, one lawyer when I was at Quaker who did the ethics work, and I worked with him some, but that was more just kind of investigations. If there should be issues, he would get involved. But then when I started at Pepsi, I had the true good fortune. I mean, a, really one of the great privileges in my career was to work for Larry Thompson, who is truly the godfather of compliance in a lot of ways from a governmental level. He got it. He understands compliance. He really pushed it and he really helped build out a great program at Pepsi.
1: It's an incredible story. When you think about it, you started with three people, but when you were asked to do that, was there any part of you that hesitated? Cause you didn't, I mean, nothing against what people knew about compliance, but at that point, compliance is in its infancy, did Larry have to give you a hard sell on it, or did he just say this would be a great opportunity? How did he convince you? I mean, that was a big move, and it could have been not a great move, but it turned into a fantastic move.
0: Yeah, that's a great, great question. It was fairly unknown back when he talked about it, but I can tell you Larry is not only a very persuasive person, but a very genuine person who said, look, I'm completely behind this. And I can tell you, I, others that I've worked for and other general counsel that I've seen and other businesses and otherwise, not everybody has that commitment and not everybody has that understanding that Larry did, but he was absolutely committed to it. And for the number of years that I was at Pepsi with uh, as the chief compliance officer, I actually commuted. I would take a plane on a Monday morning to White Plains, and then I would come home on Thursday night's and this
1: was from Chicago, In Chicago. where you yeah. are. Well, you know who our colleague is like that is Ellen Hunt Yeah, had the same commute, but she went to DC yeah. from Chicago. Yeah.
0: She was doing that for our, yeah, it was amazing because you'd get on the plane and you'd see the same 25 or 30 people every Monday morning making that commute. And this is obviously pre-pandemic. So a lot of people made the commute. But one funny story there was that back when I did that, my middle son, Peter, would have been six or seven when I started. Well, every day I would get a call at four o'clock Eastern, three o'clock Chicago time. Peter would run home and he would call me. And so one day he didn't call. I said, okay, that was kind of different. Well, senior vice president of HR, who's now with Google, came up to my office, I don't know, half an hour later or so. Said, Do you have a son named Peter? And I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, apparently he misdialed by one number and he kept me on the phone. He kept me on the phone. For a half an hour asking, do you know my dad? Who are his friends? What does he do all day? (laughs) Does he have anybody that he goes to lunch with? It was very funny.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to Larry Thompson, we know him from the Thompson memo. I had the privilege to know Larry super well like you did. His reputation was just unbelievable. Yeah a consummate professional, but what do you think that it was that Larry saw about where compliance was going? Because this was a big deal for a big company like Pepsi to say, we're going to invest in this and then to see how you grew from three people to 40. What was it that he saw? What was his vision? And how did he sort of work with you on that
0: vision? When Larry was in the Bush administration, he was number two man to Eshcroft, That was back in the time of Enron, and I think WorldCom may have been at the same time, but certainly
1: Adelphi happened, all those scandals.
0: Good number of scandals, and I think the real trick for Larry or the real eye-opener for him was the idea that he viewed it as much more preventative than reactionary than many people did. And still in the government, you'll have people say, well, it's not a right question But I think his take on compliance has always been, look, to the extent that we can prevent something or to the extent that as soon as we detect it, we'll go in and check it out instead of waiting until everything was fully investigated. That was kind of what he championed. He looked at it as much more of a prophylactic than a lot of people did back in the day when it was, oh, okay, well, can we go out and find the evidence and can we convict either the company or the individuals? I think where he was a visionary and compliance was... The entire idea, two of them really. The first of which was much more of an independent function, and we can talk a little bit of his thoughts on that. Including, I always reported to the board. I had executive sessions every time the board met with the audit committee, and I didn't tell people, "Hey, here's what I'm going to talk about," or anything else. That's one thing, and then the second thing is, I think he really looked at it as, "Okay, how do we go out and make sure that we're taking these steps." to prevent the problems that you might see otherwise. You really was a visionary. Well,
1: I remember when I didn't have as much gray hair, the big dispute in the beginning was, do you have a separate independent chief compliance officer who doesn't report to the chief legal officer? And you and others pushed that. Donna Bone, Larry, I think, was very much in support of that. There were other people... The healthcare industry was already pushed in that sense. You guys won the battle eventually, but you stood as one of the early examples of an independent CCO.
0: It's interesting, like, because I certainly reported to Larry and certainly reported to him administratively, but I could tell you that on a report, as in a reporting, hey, here's what's happening, I was very much unfettered and went directly to the board. but. I record to Larry as the general counsel administratively. And by the way, I'm sure you read it. You keep up to date on everything masterfully, but did you see what OIG and HHS came out with? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely unequivocal statement that the chief compliance officer should not report into legal or into finance and should not give legal advice or financial advice. Pretty remarkable.
1: Well, actually, in the healthcare industry, we know it started Around the same time, even a little bit earlier than sort of where DOJ was, HHS OIG pushed it. And what's interesting to me, you're right, is that it's not an issue these days. And I'm not saying that's the universal solution. There are times in a smaller company or in other situations where it may be appropriate. And a lot of it is personality driven in my view because mm-hmm. it depends on whether the GC understands the importance of quote-unquote independence beyond the administrative and budgeting type of issues. But I will say the other thing that's amazing about this story, and I hope it gets preserved because I think there's a lot to be learned from it, is that Pepsi, ultimately you all, with you there and with Larry, there were other great people who have worked there. You guys built one of the best by reputation compliance programs, I think, ever. It contributed to the success of the company. You guys were innovative and thought leaders. To me, you weren't a regulated company that had to do this. And it must have been not only Larry, but your board must have given you support as well, and the CEO and other people at the time.
0: I would say a couple of things as far as the proof was in the pudding. And thank you for the words about Pepsi, I mean, was a very small part of that whole success story. But when you look at it, the world's most ethical companies, I think there have been, in the 15 years of its existence, six companies that have been a world's most ethical company every year. I think Eco Labs and a few others are some of the six, but Pepsi is one. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting is that you've had two chief compliance officers, one of my successors, Dave Yalman, who became the general counsel. Went from being the chief compliance officer to the general counsel, and then his replacement as the chief compliance officer, David Flavel, is now the general counsel, having succeeded Dave Yellman. That shows you that there's a real commitment to compliance and a real respect and trust for the position. And I would also say to you that unquestionably the board at the time was very committed to the whole idea of compliance. And Edwin Nui, the former CEO was very committed to doing the right thing. Her old tagline at Pepsi was performance with purpose. And she was a sports fan actually, a Yankees fan. (laughs) It was the opposite of the old White Sox motto of winning ugly.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) She would say it. She did not want to win ugly, which was very funny. But you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, you can succeed, but you can cut corners every step of the way. And I think that Pepsi did a very good job, particularly for a company that was really competing on price and on distribution and some other things and did very well and really remained dedicated to the idea of integrity and doing the right thing.
1: Well, let me give you one story. If you look at your record, Pepsi has never been the subject of a serious enforcement action. But I think there's more to it than that. I think that you were the first or one of the early ones to turn it into a value add to the business, to demonstrate that the business performs better because of your culture. So to me, that's a business case study unto itself. I got to know you there, but then to work with your colleague, Stephen King. And every time I worked with the company, I'd like to say that I was teaching anything, but To be honest with you, I learned more than I could ever teach by just being with the group. The discussion levels, the level of performance, the expectations, the professionalism of everyone in the organization that I dealt with, and some of the people that you mentioned as well, was just top-notch. And I think it reflected the overall leadership. They hired people that were consistent with their ethical values and their performance expectations. So it was always a pleasure to do that. And not to turn to the sublime or the ridiculous, but in a sense, when you look at your career path and working with other companies, it must be difficult when you're brought into a company to assist them, either as a legal consulting type of role. And when you don't see those pieces that are there that Larry and everybody that you and had the benefit of working with for so many years at Pepsi, you must feel like, hey, you guys, it's easy. Let's just do it this way and tell them the Pepsi way or do the Pepsi things. So how do you deal with that in your career? And do you find it challenging to sort of bring people along in the compliance profession like that or to explain to businesses why it is so
0: important? I don't necessarily find it frustrating because not every company as the resources or necessarily the leadership that you would have seen in those circumstances with Pepsi and particularly with Larry. But we had the good fortune of having a lot of people that I've worked with and on the old coaching tree, a lot of people that have gone on to great success and have held leadership positions at a lot of different companies, that many of them really do see it and say, okay, you know what, there's a real benefit to this. And it's not just the prevention of the crime, which is important, very important. But one of the really, really good things that the Department of Justice has done in its numerous pronouncements since 2017, and uh, Mike, I'll have to send it on to you, but in one of our classes, we've kind of done a whole summary of the seven or eight of them in the last seven years or six years, is the reliance upon, okay, what you do can be risk-based. And as a matter of fact, it should be risk-based and that you should be able to sit down. Okay, you're not going to be able to boil the ocean, but you can look and say, okay, from a reasonable person's position, what are the top risks that the company may have? Start working against that. And the other thing is to be able to sit down and say, you can't handle everything immediately, but what you can do is work a plan, have a strategic plan. I recommend to a lot of companies I work with sit down and have a good thoughtful five-year plan and lay out where you want to be each year. I read a really interesting article a couple weeks ago, and it basically said that one of the faults in people's production is they overestimate what they can get done in a day and underestimate what they can get done in a month. And if you just work consistently to try to get something done over a period of time, if you're disciplined and you follow the plan, you can get an awful lot done. And that's really what I to tell people. You're not going to get everything done in the first week, but if you lay it out and the Department of Justice has said in no uncertain terms between the Monaco memo and otherwise, show your work. You can't be doing it retroactively. Show your work prospectively. Show us what you're thinking as you're going along, not only to defend what you're doing, but also to have a plan that you work against.
1: That's a really good point because I can remember starting out in the field years and years ago, and I was so excited about here's the way we can make this a better program then i quickly working with clients realized this is going to take a long time you can't change and come in and start issuing policies or revising this and doing that and the importance of building a team and support and getting support from other functions and all your internal political skills what i love about the idea that we work with clients just like you do and we will say to them, here are things you should do based upon, let's say, your risk-based recommendations. What's a high priority? And we'll look at a three to five-year time frame. Be realistic because that amount of change, even when it's marginal, you've got to be realistic about how much you're going to be able to change within the company. The only time the dynamic changes, in my view, is when there's an enforcement action or a monitor. Yep who lets you be the vehicle for change. They are the vehicle for change, and you sort of hitch your wagon to them. But internally, the thing that you're talking about, I couldn't agree more. When you have your vision for five years and you build your support step by step, and then people start to realize you're being reasonable, you're taking steps, and you want to build sort of a team approach to it, that works. A friend of mine, a colleague working at a company, had to do an integration project after an acquisition, and he told me the best thing that happened was getting everybody together in one room with compliance in one committee and having a project leader on integration, and everybody work together in that situation. Yeah. So compliance got to tail along with other parts of the business. Anyways, your vision of that, or the way you describe that to me is just a best-in practice type of strategy.
0: And Mike, you really hit upon one of the things that I would say on a parallel path as you're doing that is to say to the leadership and to the compliance folks and to legal as well. You got to make sure that you include compliance and they've got a seat at the table so that they know what's happening. But all the while, you want a culture, and it's one of the things in our program at Loyola that we really do study, is okay. What happens when something goes wrong at a company? You talk about these great scandals. What do you see? And one of the really standard root causes is the inability for employees to speak up. And I'm not talking about, I'm going to report that John Smith is embezzling millions of dollars. Obviously, you need to have methods for that to be reported up. But the whole idea that when you look at cases like Wells Fargo, when you look at Volkswagen, General Motors and Boeing, so many really bright, talented, and often good people just never felt like they could raise a concern. Or if they raised a concern, their manager basically said, forget about it or don't worry about it. Not a problem. It's okay. And they knew in their heart of hearts, hey, we've got issues here. And they didn't report it past their manager. They didn't go to a speak up line or they didn't feel comfortable enough to go to somebody in the C suite and say, hey, We're never going to have eight accounts like Wells Fargo thought, oh, okay, well, you know, we're pretty sophisticated financial people. We've got two or three accounts. i got to come up with eight accounts for retirees. To me, that was one of the things on a background level I'd say to you, Mike, is yes, you have to have planning and you have to have a plan in place, but you also have to have as a parallel track is this idea, hey, look, let's make sure that we've got the right culture and we're trying to build the right.
1: Terrific. Yeah, that's a great point. We could go back and forth. I've got so many ideas on that, but I do want to take a moment, though, to turn to Loyola and the program that you have there. And just to offer a setup type of comment and question is, for years, I've had many people, and I'm sure you have too, about what's the best way for me to get into compliance. And for years, there wasn't much educational support out there. And now, as we were talking about this before, there are the Loyola program that you're running now, and there are other opportunities out there for people. There's just a huge demand that I see for this. And frankly, I think this is one of the best things about the profession now, is that you are bringing these educational opportunities to people and providing training. Remember, Donna Bohm always said, Compliance, it's a subject matter expertise field. It is something that you can learn and be trained in. I wanted to get your thoughts on that and to hear more about what you're doing at Loyola. Obviously, we'll give your contact info out there, but people need to know about the availability of your program.
0: Uh, thanks for that opportunity, Mike. And Dada is exactly right, and Dada was saying this 15 years ago. And that is that ethics and compliance, should always put the E and the C together, is its own profession. It's its own, not just an industry, but it really is beyond a vocation. It's a profession and has really grown up to be a standalone profession. With that has really come a great opportunity with several law schools, not just Loyola, but I'll tell you about the Loyola program, which I really do think is best in the country, but Loyola Law School from Chicago, First, started with a healthcare compliance and healthcare program. And then, about 10 years ago, added compliance and enterprise risk management. We offer classes for those students that are getting their JD. So, go in them, want to become a lawyer and you're interested in compliance, you can come in and take our classes. And we have several students that have done that over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, many of them in compliance field now as well. But we also have two other programs that are really more of the programs that I'm involved in. The first one is the Master of Jurisprudence, the MJ program, which is for people who do not have law degrees, who look at compliance, and maybe they're a paralegal, they're a manager, maybe they're in audit. Say, gee, I'd really like to move over into compliance. It's a two-year program, thirty credit hours. It's a terrific program. We are very practical. We have practitioners, people like Ted Banks and. Ellen Hunt, our adjunct professors, and do a tremendous job. And then we also have the LLM program, which is for lawyers who say, you know what, I want a true specialization in compliance. That's a two-year program as well. It's 24 credit hours. My wife, Nancy, is an LLM out of Loyola. She's out of their healthcare program, not out of compliance program. But to your point, it, to me, has been a tremendous engine for the profession and for people who are interested in seeing this is not just hey, it's a bolt-on for the legal department. And as you know, more and more companies are not requiring a JD for somebody who wants to go into compliance. They may hire somebody who is not a lawyer. and that's a good thing. and this program on the MJ side really does offer that. and uh, I'll tell you, we've had great success and we've had chief compliance officers of the program. We've had general counsel, we've had in-house lawyers. They've all said the same thing. They think it's really helped their career. So thanks for asking about it. It's a great program. If you're interested, certainly contact me, but it's a great avenue for people to build upon their careers.
1: Yeah. I want to emphasize that one point because I see it a lot these days. There are a lot of people now in the compliance field who aren't lawyers. You and I have always agreed, and I've always pushed the idea that you do not have to be a lawyer to work in compliance. There are a lot of people in the compliance field who don't have JDs. For a while, people used to think you need a JD, and I am actually working with more people who are non-lawyers in the compliance field. I just think it's great that you offer that because I've seen people, for example, who are internal auditors and they want to move into compliance. I've seen people from other parts of the business who want to get more compliance education and want to go into compliance. And they're not lawyers, and sometimes they were reluctant to do it because they thought they had to go to law school. If you could talk a little bit more about that and the two-year program, is this also something where people can work and also do the education, or is it a full-time thing where you would have to not work?
0: Most of our students do this as a part-time and continue working As I said, some of them are actually in the compliance field, working in compliance as they're getting this jointly. But we provide the classes in the evening. They're online. Many classes may be asynchronous in the sense that we would post lectures and you would study that. It's worked out very well. I think people are very happy with that. And, And you're exactly right. Compliance is becoming a field that is not just made up And there's nothing wrong with being a lawyer in it in some positions, but it's no longer a requirement. And if you're interested, I can give you the information. Like You go to our website, which is luc.edu backslash compliance studies. That's Loyola University of Chicago dot luc.edu backslash compliance studies. My email address is snaughton2 at luc.edu. Feel free to reach out and contact me.
1: Well, that's terrific. And Steve, congratulations on an amazing career, but also the work that you're doing now to me is just critical. I wish you all the great success in that. And thank you for everything that you do for the profession. It's really amazing.
0: This has been a terrific opportunity for me. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.